0: Greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore Podcast. My name is Jeff and I'm joined as always by my good friends Richard Hello. and Michael. Howdy. Richard and Michael like to debate and deliberate the Mount Rushmore of any topic they choose. And this week the they are going to be debating the Mount Rushmore of OMG visual effects scenes in movies. But they are enlightened and they are inspired and they love movies and they love effects films. But they are not um, knowledgeable experts. And because we wanted a knowledgeable expert, we brought in a gentleman who is a journalist in the visual effects industry. He's been covering the effects industry for quite some time, uh, effects and animation. He writes for publications including Cartoon Brew, VFX Voice, 3D Artist, 3D World, Sci-Fi Movie Maker, Thrillist, and his own website, which I've been following since its inception, uh, befores and afters. Uh, you can follow him on Ian at Ian Fails on Twitter and Instagram. Please welcome Ian Fails. How are you today, sir?
1: Good, Jeff. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's a delight. Uh, Ian, I have to own up that I'm a big a fanboy of, of yours. I love the writing <laughs> that you do on visual effects. Um, my wife watches HGTV and she loves home makeover shows. Well, I love Uh, cinematic makeovers where you see uh, the raw ingredients that is captured through the lens or comes from a performance or exists on a motion capture stage. We've all seen those people in tights with the ping pong balls all over them. And then you see how it is assembled and how a team of artists, not just technicians, brings it together to create a story uh, that impacts us emotionally. So uh, I love how you are able to tell us why those uh, those artists are important and how they work together and how uh, their work is very interesting. Uh, how long have you been covering this type of uh, industry?
1: Um, I feel like I've been covering it for a long time, but it's not it's not super long. About 2010, I started doing it professionally. But I did start when the era of blogs was just becoming a big thing um, start by making my own blog in about 2001, um, and just doing it as a, as an extra thing to my real daytime job. And then in 2010, I quit my real job and became a visual effects journalist just sort of overnight.
0: Well, your um, real job was a lawyer. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Crazy what, change. What did your family or a uh, girlfriend think about that? Uh,
1: <laughs> well, I don't think my parents are very happy still okay. but, um, no it's it was the best thing I ever did i I loved it and I haven't looked back and um as you say, I just love looking behind the scenes at all this stuff. I come at it from a real fan as much as a you know like looking at it professionally as well and I still get amazed by what I see out there in film and television and games and virtual production and everything as everything like that as well.
0: Yeah, well, that's cool. Um, it's nice that you could still be interested in it after many years of covering it. So uh, so let's just jump right in, if you don't mind. Um, so it is the Mount Rushmore of OMG VFX scenes in films. And uh, give us your first choice, Ian. My first choice is
1: um, Bullet Time from The Matrix. Oh, wow, um, cool. Uh, also I mean, on our
2: list. Oh, right yeah. on, great.
1: Yeah. Probably a very obvious one, but you know, no matter how much I still rewatch that film and particularly the that that f- main dodging bullet sequence on the rooftop that Neo goes through, I still kind of marvel at how that was done um and that it still fits in so well with the filmmaking as well. Lot lots of you know, we might talk about this later on, but lots of visual effects sequences sometimes are a little bit too standalone. I've always felt like bullet time Absolutely, works in the the schema of that whole film and and that whole world that the Wachowskis had created. Well,
2: what it, I liked about it, what I liked about it, it was that they kind of teased it at the very beginning of the film with um, yeah. uh, uh, what's her name?
0: Trinity. Uh, Trinity. Trinity.
2: Trinity. She kind of does. They do the same sort of camera work, the kind of camera array, spinning thing on her, but it's shot in the dark, and you're not quite sure what you saw and you're by the time you get to like a full daylight rooftop thing and they kind of explain how he can manipulate time and kind of manipulate you know be faster than the computers it all starts to just uh, coalesce into like this amazing moment where he almost gets it he almost gets away with it and he still you know gets shot but like the way that they kind of represent time slowing down or someone being faster than time or something whatever that interpretation through those visual effects i think was just so perfectly done
0: yeah absolutely i, I agree you know you won't find any other podcasts where mentioning Keanu reeves will get you so much credit right out the bat so <laughs> and, and dodging a bullet as he did i i let me ask you this do you do you find is there, is there something you can put your finger on in terms of what made it so compelling? It was a visual that we'd never seen before. Anything I'd never seen anything like it before, but what was it? Well, i
1: tell you what it is in my mind is that it, it stayed photoreal. So because of the way they shot it and because of the way they executed it, you never actually felt like you left the building, um, the roof of the building, or, or you went somewhere else to make this shot which of course is not true. They they filmed Keanu on a big green screen set um, with this camera array rig. I think it was 120 cameras um, shooting film, by the way. Um, and, you know, they were independently triggered. Uh, they had been pre-visualised, which means that it had all been worked out before. Um, and when they had that, those still images, they were then able to use some relatively fantastical techniques, um, something called optical flow to work out the in-betweens of, um, of, of, of Keanu as he moved around. But it wasn't just that there, was, there was actually a photoreal virtual background side to this as well. So back in 1998 or 99 when they were making the film, it was still really hard to model things photorealistically. And I don't think they ever really attempted to do that. They just used real photography of it was actually shot in Sydney, um, Sydney backgrounds, to 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 make those backgrounds photoreal. So what I mean is, the scene remained in the film and stayed very photoreal, which I think for an audience makes you you, you know something's going on on the screen, but it doesn't take you out of the movie. And as you say, it was it was some sort of imagery that you'd never really seen before, the, the time slowing down. But I feel the biggest breakthrough was that you stayed in the movie.
0: Yeah, who was it? I was listening to it. Phil Tippett or somebody was talking about CG is the thing that looks real but feels fake, and uh, mm. and whereas there are some practical effects you'll see in films that uh, look fake but feels real, you know it's really there and you know it's really happening. I think. Uh, that that effect felt, looked at uh, everything. I bought everything about it.
2: And I will I say that, some, yeah, go I ahead. I think something that, that also stands out about it is that it feels very much like a signature special effect. Like you cannot see that in another film and not think of The Matrix. I know that they've mm-hmm. like, no. you know, you've seen uh, parodies of it, but you can't see that happen and not be like, oh, I know I know where that comes from. That came from this thing. And it feels very much like it is so iconic to that specific film and that specific moment that anything else that tries to do something similar is like, eh, well, you know, they did it already. <laughs> and I think, that, I think that's one of the weird things about special effects is so much is built on things that have already been done and that you're pushing both ways. You're taking all the stuff that's already been done and then also trying to invent something new. And um, you know, it's basically a lot of it or not a lot of it, but, in part, it's like an idea of like kind of still photography. Well, that's film, I guess. But like, I don't know, there's something that feels that they created something that you've never seen before. And then if you try to recreate it, you're just going to think of that scene or that moment.
1: Yes, I totally agree. In fact, visual effects supervisors are asked every film, basically, or every time, make us something we've never seen before. But I think in this case, they really, they really did, right?
0: yeah I will right. say that that moment so when I saw Star Wars in the theater in seventy seven uh, it was twenty two years later seeing The Matrix and seeing that moment where uh Keanu and the people around him realize he is the one uh I had that same tingle that moment where uh Luke realizes he has the force and he is special and he is uh um the one who is going to be the savior of this ragtag team of uh rebels and misfits so yeah, that was, and I think if that effect wasn't believable, it would pull you out of the movie. It would take you away from the story, the getting behind the protagonist, and uh, so that's why it's so successful. Okay, so Richard and Michael chose Bullet Time as well, which means we're going to move on to Richard and Michael, but they'll be sharing what is their second choice uh, for the Mount Rushmore of OMG VFX scenes in films.
3: Yeah, so I'll I'll go with our our second choice, and this one I think is also a pretty obvious. I don't want to say obvious one, but one of the one of the big ones and that is jurassic park the t-rex attack scene at the end night where it's following the lights um this is one of those movies where it was like avatar in the sense that you went into it fully knowing you were going to see something that you would in a way that you had never thought that you would see it before i mean there had been dinosaurs in movies going back to the almost the invention of movies and we'd gone through stop motion, primitive CGI, all these different ways to do it. And this just felt different. I remember watching the film and it really having that, that sense of reality. It really did feel like there were dinosaurs there in, you know, interacting in a way that animals would interact with actors during a scene. Mm Mm-hmm. So I, it, I remember. I just remember going to see Jurassic Park when I was in high school, and being pretty jaded as a high school kid, like thinking, well, you know, I've seen pretty much everything you could see in the movie, and walking out of that, and just with our friend, my friends, just being, can you believe that? That looked, that's unbelievable.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian, uh, for your book, uh, Ian has a book which is available out on Amazon masters of fx you do profile a gentleman named uh, phil tippett in that and he is kind of renowned for those uh, dinosaurs in that film unless i'm mistaken uh did you get uh, it gather well, any insight can you share us share with us anything yeah
1: of course and it, look it's great you mentioned phil tippett he was a big part of that film but as many people may know is his, his stop motion dinosaurs were originally what ilm ended up doing so stop motion was going to be something that Steven Spielberg used in a big way in Jurassic Park as well as Stan Winston's full-size animatronic dinosaurs. And CG was really only going to be used to integrate them into the film and perhaps do some crowd, um, dinosaur crowds. But once Spielberg saw a test that ILM had done of a CG dinosaur, things just, you know, snowballed. And basically, Phil Tippett's um, stop-motion dinosaurs were no longer part of the film. He stayed on, famously, as the dinosaur supervisor, which he often gets <laughs> criticized for because he didn't do a great job of supervising, <laughs> supervising the raptors. But Dennis Murin was the ILM visual effects supervisor ah, okay. in charge of the you know mainly the CG work and the overall visual effects supervisor. Mm-hmm. But Phil brought what I feel is, is this movement of dinosaurs approach. He knew how creatures behaved and he was able to input that into a lot of the CG animation.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I what a... was so sick. Oh, go ahead. Richard. I was
3: just going to say there's a lack of herky jerkiness in the, the movements of the dinosaurs, as you said, that I think really helped heighten the sense of reality with it. I think what we had seen in the past, you know, the ability for the, for the let's say dinosaurs or animals, whatever whatever it had, it had been in the past, to interact with the actors had had never really quite been there. You always looked at it and said, "Wait, is this a map? What what are we what are we looking at here?" This was the first time where it, it, for me that it really felt like there was true interaction. Mm-hmm. Michael.
2: Oh, I was just going to say, I thought that you know part of it's just like the filmmaking and the editing of, you know they they were so they cut back and forth so well between the you know the giant models the giant puppets and the CGI that, that it was you're not, I was never quite sure which one was which until you're like watching the making of behind the scenes documentaries that come with the DVDs you know once you once you get into those you're like oh that one was the puppet that one was the CGI you know, some of them where they're running, obviously, they, you know, they're not having a, <laughs> a a puppet run. But like some of the other, like some close up shots with like the dilation of the eyes, you would have thought might have been like um, CGI, but those were just real puppets. And just a lot of the things that they just were able to blend the the two different disciplines, I thought was, um, you know, obviously yeah. it's it's amazing. And and I don't think the dinosaur movies, I don't think there's been a the Jurassic Park movie that's gotten be- that's gotten better in terms of how it looks. I don't know.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, I remember watching the original, or the, the original, but the Jurassic World, the first one of the reboot, and thinking, this, I, I, I can see that it's improved. I can see where the money's been spent. But it doesn't feel like it's been improved. I still feel as much of a connection, if not mm. more, to the original Jurassic Park dinosaurs as I do to these holy cgi productions today
1: there's something as well michael on your point about you weren't sure which was practical which was digital or or whatnot it's really interesting isn't it when you go back and watch jurassic park from 1993 even though you know that these are practical dinosaurs maybe in that scene and then digital and you know it switches between them i feel like the way as you say it was edited and whatnot you really forgive it
3: Mm-hmm. Or you're so
1: sucked into the story that it doesn't matter at all. And in fact, there's that's a bit of a common theme with practical effects is that people have this love, I feel, and affinity towards them that they really you know, are very happy to to have that in the movie. Jaws clearly is a big example of that. That thing looks like a rubber shark, right? Yeah. But we kind of love it and we don't care. I feel like a little bit the same with Jurassic, even though the dinosaurs were practical dinosaurs were brilliantly done It
0: uh, is a fun uh mention is that steven spielberg who directed you know the first blockbuster jaws where uh the shark didn't work most of the time so he didn't yeah. get to show it and it seems like it became <laughs> went from monster movie to psychological thriller because of the mechanical failures and shortcomings of bruce the shark so can you imagine spielberg talking with the effects supervisor and saying what i can actually point a camera at this thing?" you mean we can actually see the dinosaurs? Oh, I got to restoryboard this whole <laughs> movie. <laughs> well, cool. That's a cool pull. Um, so I, what I love about this is that we're getting into, um, and discussing all of these, uh, um, sequences as components of visual storytelling, uh, versus effects for their own, um, for just the sake of blowing something up or showing a spaceship or something like that. they are tools of a visual storyteller and, and uh, um, and used to elicit emotion and used to elicit an emotion uh, response from an audience. So super cool. So uh, Ian, at this point, you're going to let us know your second choice. Okay. I, I might just say that my fourth choice was actually
1: Jurassic park. Oh, okay. The right. Rotunda end sequence where the T-Rex takes on the Raptors. Maybe right. we can come back to that briefly at the end. Oh yeah, but, for sure. Um, my number two is probably my favorite visual effects shot of all time which is the mirror shot in contact. Um, now, this is the one where young Ellie um, realises her dad has collapsed um, and she runs up in a cam move. Um, the cam is running in front of her um, up the stairs to the bathroom cabinet. And then somehow it becomes her running towards the bathroom cabinet realizing you've been watching her in the mirror the whole time and then she she appears she opens the cabinet and um grabs some pills for her father it it's a stunning shot it's not a huge visual effect shot by any means but the invisible nature of it is something that's always stayed with me so much over the years um and there's actually a ton of visual effects in contact but that one is just one of the most clever ones that I've ever seen. Still don't always know how it's done, even though I've interviewed several times the visual effects supervisor and compositor behind that cool. shot. And I, I really love it.
0: Is it because we, when we see a dinosaur, uh, we don't have one of those in our house where we all have a mirror <laughs> in our house. I, I, I think those things, uh, we, we interviewed a, um, a practical effect practical and makeup effects uh, artist named Dan Crawley and he was uh speaking about the challenge of doing an old age makeup as opposed to doing a fantasy creature makeup uh not none of us have ever met Skeletor but we all have an older relative than we can uh and have met older and aging people before so The fact that everyone has a mirror such as that in their home and that they did not uh, see the effect coming, that must be one of the reasons why it was so impactful. I think
1: so. The other other reason is it doesn't break. So this is another classic challenge with visual effects shots is that you're shooting an actor for a scene and then you go to the visual effects shot and it's often a cut. It's often yeah. shot on a blue screen. It's often, you know, got some sort of CG in it that looks different than what was shot on set or in, on the stage. This one, it's absolutely part of the long cam view of, of young Ellie running to the bathroom cabinet. Um, and even if you watch this shot 20 times in a row, it's almost impossible to see where it starts being her running and starts being the reflection.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know what? I think we're at our halftime right now. And I'm going to use this opportunity to shill for Ian. Uh, Befores and afters has a blog post about that uh, mirror effect shot in Contact. And it also has a post about the uh, research and pre-visualization done for the bull time Sequence. You can go back and dig deep into some, uh, uh, basically pick your favorite film and go back and look and uh, find some stories about the making of the visual effects. And there was also some retro uh, uh, posts. So we all know that many of the contemporary visual effects are done uh, using computers. And so uh, that has changed from the past where there are all kinds of sets and, and, Foreshortening and magical practical effects that uh, uh, were uh, really compelling and interesting. So, kind of these days, a lot of it's done in a computer, but it's fun to go back and uh, see some of the the retro effects and the practical effects. Um, You can also, since we're at a halftime and we're shilling a little bit, you can also do what I did and go support the befores and afters out there on Patreon. I just signed up at the five dollar. A month level and i'm already seeing some really cool things uh uh michael winfield on our show is a big star wars fan and there is a how they made ray and chewie sink into the sand for rise of skywalker which mm. is actually kind of hilarious some stuff uh about how they did that in in a surprisingly a uh, lo-fi way diy kind of way out there in the desert so that was uh, pretty neat so
2: um, I'll have to check it
0: out. Yeah, check it out. So, and while we're at it, I might as well plug myself and our podcast and uh, Richard and Michael. That is uh, the Mount Rushmore Podcast. You can join the dialogue of the Mount Rushmore Podcast out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You know what? You can actually guide the future of the Mount Rushmore Podcast by suggesting a topic. Past suggestors have become guests on the Mount Rushmore Podcast. Uh, you could also listen to this podcast right now and let us know what your favorite vfx scene is that made you omg and post it out on the facebook or instagram or twitter and let us know what we missed um please do us a solid and download rate and review past episodes on your podcast aggregator of choice we're out there on all of them and then uh share it with a friend uh it's a great way to let them know about something rad that you like uh like this so dudes it's so rad it's so rad um so awesome so we are back uh now we flipped so it's richard and michael letting us know their third choice
2: well um the third choice that we have is this is a movie that i just adore and listen it's one of the most iconic sequences in movies and of course that's when um uh, Atom in Real Steel is fighting Zeus, oh, no.
0: and um, Adam's
2: voice <laughs> no. modulator is damaged, nope. and so Hugh Jackman as Charlie oh. has to
0: uh, <laughs>
2: rely on his visual shadow function. Of course, I'm not talking about <laughs> that movie. <laughs> um, the only special effect in that movie is how they kept an eleven-year-old boy in a white tank top. Yeah, that seemed very strange. That's, that's very strange. Very bizarre. No, um it's a movie I actually do adore and love. Um and it is uh strangely another Wachowski movie, which is the final race in Speed Racer. Oh fun. Which is uh I just rewatched it um in preparation for this. And actually when when I was thinking of like this topic of OMG, like this is the like I think the last movie, even though the movie's nearly a decade old, that or even older, two thousand nine, I think. 2008, 2007, holy shit. Uh, movie where I was like just literally almost crying at the end, watching that final race. The way that the racetrack turns into like this checkerboard, psychedelic uh, kind of comic book animated uh, reaching this you know event horizon level that matches like the retelling of the story so far, I think it comes back to what we were talking about with editing, with, uh, with the story, with all of it matching up to this one kind of perfect moment for speed. And um, I don't know, there's just some aspect of this that was just like visually so delicious to watch on screen and like something I've, I've never seen. You know, I've seen movies where they've tried to do kind of like a comic book editing like a comic book style before that just never quite worked like uh angley's hulk where they tried oh, to do yeah. a lot of like paneling but uh, there's something about speed racer and something about this final scene where uh his journey kind of has a very luke skywalker star wars esque you know finding the force and ac- accomplishing his goal and winning the race which is i think just perfect
0: that's a fun pull. i haven't I haven't spoken a word about Speed Racer since I saw it in the theater. I haven't I have not huh. revisited it. But, yeah, it does very much succeed at at taking this style of the animated cartoon, which I was a big fan of and amplifying it and adapting it and honoring its roots, yet making it cinematic for today's audiences.
1: That's a fun poll. And it's psychedelic, that final sequence you're mentioning. It, that's, that's like, why we go to the cinema. I was just, uh, like, taken away when that scene happened. And uh, the visual effects, I, I don't know if he was the overall supervisor, but John Gator also did the Matrix films. Um, and, you know, some of the technology in Speed Racer was advancing the CG, but also using those virtual environments again. Like, they had this concept of spherical bubbles, um, almost virtual reality things where you could go anywhere in the scene. Um, but yeah, that final sequence was magic, wasn't it? I totally yeah. loved it.
3: I remember uh. I, I saw this, I, I never saw the the movie, but I did see it because I was at the drive-in watching another movie and I don't remember the movie and it wasn't very good, <laughs> but I was watching. And it was playing on the side, one of the other screens. And I found myself just kind of looking back at it every couple of minutes and immediately getting drawn into the visuals and the effects and what was happening in the movie. That's all I got.
0: Okay. That's
3: it? <laughs> that it. All right. That's my, that's my Speed Racer story.
0: Michael, when you said speed, as in the first name of Speed Racer, I thought you were going to trigger Ian because he is a speed super fan. Stan. Yeah. Ian, what is it about the film Speed that uh, is so compelling for you?
1: Well. It came out in 94. I was 16 years old um, and I was just getting obsessed with filmmaking. You know, I, I didn't follow that path until a few years later. But watching Speed, I just realised, was such a masterclass in action filmmaking. And then a few years later when eBay started, I just got on the bandwagon of getting speed memorabilia from ebay so i just became obsessive compulsive about getting all the available speed memorabilia that was possible and i think i cleared the decks of ebay of this memorabilia <laughs> and i still collect it today and i i'm not sure i can really explain it it's just a weird obsession
2: how many well, pieces of um alan ruck's clothes do you have <laughs> from that film?
1: i've never found any of his
2: huh. <laughs>
0: right dudes let's jump back into it and am i right or am i right uh ian you're doing your third choice yes great my my third
1: oh my god visual effects shot is um one from inception um which is the paris building fold sequence Mm -hmm. i think you know again it's about for me being in the cinema and this film has already been kind of crazy and well what's going on and then these two characters see Paris folding on itself. I don't think we'd seen that kind of thing in any way before. I don't think we'd seen it so photo real. Um, and then, you know, that sequence goes even further, which is they walk around the city and walk up, you know, vertical streets and um, all that kind of stuff. To me, it, it it just was absolute visual effects and storytelling integrated plus it had some really beautiful visual effects which is done by uh, a company called DNEG, um which uh you know often do um chris uh nolan's films and they really really do the invisible effects thing in fact they they often can't talk about a lot of the work that they've done say on films like um some of the batman films or even um Oh, I'm having a total blank, but the, 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 the Chris Nolan one with the Interstellar
2: Dunkirk.
1: And, oh, yeah. Dullard, or Dunkirk. But... Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just sort of obsessed about the way Chris Nolan makes his films, which is that he really, he says outwardly that he doesn't really like CG or visual effects, but in fact he uses it in almost the perfect way, which is just part of the storytelling.
0: I was watching Dr. Strange and they sure used that uh, folding building effect. Yeah. Uh, um, if, if it was, a, a kind of a, a, it was almost like a parsley on the side of the dish of inception and they made the entire steak out of it. Richard and Michael, I think this is your final choice.
3: It, it is. And okay. it is a, a movie that we literally just talked about with inception. Oh, okay. Um, uh, the scene that, uh, I chose to go with for us is the hallway fight scene. Oh yeah. Um, being a scene that I remember in a movie that had so many amazing visuals. And you mentioned the Paris folding and things that felt psychedelic or incredibly made something that was unrealistic seem realistic. I think the hallway fight scene in inception there was a, I think there was a sense of, I don't want to say grittiness to it, but it felt like, a, I mean, the fight itself felt like a real fight, which is an amazing thing to actually have it feel like when you understand what it took to get that scene on film. Um, essentially, they built a giant centrifuge with all of these different moving pieces and one of the other things I was really interested in about it is I think we think of the actors in a in a special effects heavy movie. You think of the i you know you think of you know the the stereotype of an actor kind of acting against a green screen with a mop with a a wig on it, and they're just gonna put everyone else in later and in this case uh Joseph Gordon Levitt really he spent two weeks learning how. The whole center set worked and learning how the wires would work so that he would be able to not just hit go from point a to point b and hit his marks but to be able to do it fluidly and really to understand how how the technology worked and so it really made him sort of a an integral part of the the visual effect so he went beyond just being an actor and he really was part of what of what you were seeing
2: yeah i think this being like uh something that was a bit more practical also speaks to the nature of the film that you know the posters and the visuals you see in the you know in the trailer are something that's so mind-blowing that you assume that everything else they're doing is also uh digital or you know in in some way you know you know obviously it was cg modified if they're removing like uh wires and things like that but the practicality of these sets um, I think is, you know, one of the really underrated things about, like, really, you know, real, like, professional filmmakers that have this this love of doing something practically if they can. Like, I think of, um, like, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, so much of that was just done with just, um, you know, actors in the same room. They're basically the same size, but they're just shot at, you know, 25 feet apart with a camera set up a certain way and being foreshortened. And they're all like visual effects. They're all these tricks of the camera and tricks of the eye. And, you know, it's, it's that blending of not knowing what is real, what is CGI, what is, you know, they're all special effects in some, some manner. It's all mm-hmm. just trying to fool the human eye into thinking, oh, I believe everything that I'm seeing within this mm-hmm. rectangle.
1: And I think think in something like Inception, the the cleverest thing is that multiple techniques were used. Like Mm. there is plenty of CGI. There's miniatures. That hospital fortress um, um, destruction is a miniature. You know, the the wire removal in the scene that you've mentioned is incredible. I mean, seamless. Sometimes you can sort of feel that there's been something done, but there I couldn't. Um, And then, you know, uh, uh, there's... There's just slow motion photography that's just part of that whole effects side of things. Um, I feel like I want to go out and watch the film again right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> With that, I think we take you now to the rotunda uh, scene in Jurassic Park. Am I right?
1: Yeah, that's my fourth one. And um, just like when I saw the first Brontosaurus or when I saw that nighttime attack in Jurassic Park, this, this scene blew me away. Um, because you're you're super close up on the T-Rex in this sequence. It's just insane. It seems to show that ILM was super confident about what was going on and so was Steven Spielberg, that they'd be able to pull this off. Um, I, I don't have necessarily many technical details to share about this scene, but there's a few fun things that people might not already know. I don't know if you, if you go and rewatch the film, there's a point where the T-Rex actually bites one of the Raptors and there's a missing frame in ILM's render. They, for some reason, one of the render frames of the Raptor disappears and it actually disappears out of the T-Rex's mouth. So go ahead and rewatch the film and you'll see that in there. Um, That's one cool story. The other thing is that there was this famous um, blood memo between Steven Spielberg and Phil Tippett, who was, as I said before, a consultant um, on the dinosaur work. And he, Phil Tippett, is a famous creature guy, really wanted some gore and blood in that sequence. And he kept sort of writing to Steve Spielberg via memos and would get these answers back saying, no blood, no gore. You know, and so it was a bit of a to and fro. And I think there is a bit of scratch blood and that sort of thing in the final sequence. But um, that was something I did write about um, in one of my before and after stories. So um, look up blood memo and you, it's a sort of fun recounting of that with the actual memos as well, which I think is really cool.
0: I just watched again, <laughs> I think Chris Corbold is that his name? Uh, was that the, did I say the name correctly? He's
1: a practical special effects supervisor, yeah?
0: Yeah. Yep. So I just watched again... Um, uh captain america the first avenger the first captain america film directed by joe johnston and i didn't know joe johnston was an art director designer on the original star wars saga um at least he's credited with um creating the designs for the falcon and for yoda and for all these different uh components of that
2: um that saga i'm reading the um, i'm reading the uh the Rinsler uh, making of Empire Strikes Back right now, and he's all over it. Is it?
0: Uh, yeah. Well, I was watching Captain America, the first Avenger, and there are so many components of that that have the, um, the supernatural Nazi kind of stuff that was all over Indiana Jones. Um, and um, realizing that um, Joe Johnston has a connection to Lucasfilm uh, and those films so profoundly, um, I thought that was really neat that... Uh, that some of these creators can put their signature aesthetic and um, visual um, imprint on almost everything they do very profoundly. Really cool.
1: Yeah. I, I love Joe Johnson's films and it's, it's kind of cool that he's had a visual effects background. There's actually, there's a, there's a bit of a strong history in visual effects artists or supervisors wanting to get into directing. Not all of them have been successful, but, um, even James Cameron started out as a map painter, mm-hmm. you know, before he became a director. So um, I think a lot of visual effects people want to be yeah. you know, behind the camera.
0: Yeah. Was David Fincher a ILM guy?
1: He was a camera person at ILM as well. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cool. Okay, gentlemen. So thank you so much for uh, uh, chatting about this topic. I want to thank our guest Ian Fails. I want to remind people that they can go to uh, beforesandafte.rs.com. To find an entertainment storytelling site that uses visual effects as an entryway into uh, fun and compelling discussions about the magic of of um, cinematic visual storytelling, the magic behind it, and it's not just nerdy, um, you know, green screen stuff about cgi it's it's about magic tricks and the visuals uh that are created by uh, this group of artists that come together to uh really blow our minds when we sit down uh and lend our our eyeballs to the screen for the for the story to come alive in front of us so uh ian what's what's up for you what's anything you want to promote or anything going on right now um
1: i really love to see films get back into cinemas (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they don't have more to write about um no but you mentioned the patreon that's really great of you and thanks for the support that that's been a really fun way for me to connect with readers and there's a ton of bonus content on there that i also love doing um that um if you check out the patreon you can see so cool. um, yeah that, cool. that, that i'd love to dig that
0: uh i will say even though the topic was uh omg um uh vfx sequences and films uh the time has never been better for uh, VFX in television. And uh, so there are so many great series that Dean covers. There's um, uh, The Mandalorian. We see stuff uh, about uh, Westworld. We see stuff about uh, a lot of uh, stuff that we see on television. I think you might have covered Doctor Who in the past. I'm not quite sure. It definitely um, um, Game of Thrones, too. So there's a lot of great stuff to follow that isn't even a movie. Yeah, right, it's a bit
1: of a golden age, isn't it?
0: It is, it is. Uh, so we're gonna move on to the uh, scoring part of it. And Ian, there's a little bit of a tradition. It's not a rule, but somewhat of a tradition that the guest comes in and, uh, beats up on our, uh, co-hosts and ends up winning. And I, I gotta say that happened again this time. Um, even though some of your choices, uh, were a little bit, uh, covered the same film. So you each get points for, um, the bullet time sequences from the uh, Matrix, and you each get points for the uh, choosing Inception. Oh, and you each get points for Jurassic Park. Uh, but then I'm going to give Ian the um, mirror shot from Contact, because I get, did see that blog entry on befores and afters, and I could not, after watching it multiple times, discern where, where the camera switched or where the composite happened. So it was super cool. So, uh, thanks so much for listening. This has been the Mount Rushmore of OMG VFX Sequences and Films. Uh, I, as always, am Jeff. I'm Richard. I'm Michael. And I'm Ian.